And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, September 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, in Suicide Prevention Month, let's not forget the veterans' four-legged friends, plus a former submarine skipper on how to make the transition to post-military career success. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, NASA has been taking a methodical approach to an issue that vexes every agency, technology, and procurement shop, how to assure cybersecurity in the chain of suppliers from whom the agency buys software and other products. During Federal News Network's recent Cyber Leaders Exchange, I got an update from the Supply Chain Risk Management Service Lead for Information and Communications Technology, Kenitra Tyler. Of course, we have 11 different NASA centers geographically dispersed, and each center, of course, operates differently. Um, They all have a different mission. However, the problem came in that Things like cybersecurity was also being inconsistently applied depending on which center you went to. So now supply chain risk management, like other cybersecurity services, are um, delivered from an enterprise perspective. Those things that are intended to enable the mission and supply chain risk management, or uh, what we'll say is information and communications technology or cyber supply chain risk management is just one of those elements. and I caveat that uh, because ICT or CSCRIM is only one of the aspects of supply chain at NASA. Um, as an example, we have supply chain risk management activities that happen within our Office of Safety and Mission Assurance, which, hence the name, you know, they are focused on safety, uh, human uh, safety and things of that nature, whereas supply chain is performing assessments of risk, uh, safety emission assurance, they are actually performing audits and looking at things from a financial perspective. Let's talk about information and communications technology. It's pretty much basic to every single thing that happens at NASA, correct? And maybe give us a sense of the scope of these assets and resources. So uh, for the the service, it is an enterprise-wide service. It covers the entire life cycle of what we would normally refer to as a system. So that system being something that is provided a service or delivering some function or capability for the enterprise. So it's from the design, the development, how we distribute it, how we deploy it, how we acquire it. And that acquisition piece is definitely um, a, a huge part of, of what we're doing and protecting our, our assets. Um, and then also that maintenance and destruction. So we're looking at all of those threats and vulnerabilities that may be intentionally or unintentionally introduced that would compromise any of that that IT or OT, for that matter, at any stage of that. And does the information and communications technology include the intercommunications of business information and the normal business of the various centers communicating with one another? But does it also include, say, satellite communications and the downlinks in that part of the comms? It is everything that falls within the definition of a covered article. So in, in that context, it's the, the information technology as defined in a section in section 11101 of Title 40. Um, that also includes cloud computing. Um, so the telecommunications equipment, the telecommunications service, 
anything that is subject to the controlled unclassified information program, all of that encompasses what we are focused on from an ICT or a cyber scrim perspective. And let's talk about for a moment the thing that you said is foundational to protecting all of these elements, and that is the acquisition piece. That is to say, from the outset of even before you own it, security and cybersecurity are concerns. What happens at the acquisition stage or what should happen, ideally, to begin on a good foot with what what it is you're buying and eventually deploying? So we have two things. Um, I'll start with, I guess, the easier one, which is that commercial IT acquisition process. Um, We have another team also within the office of the CIO um, that is the IT acquisition management, ITAM, or commercial IT request sitter team. As part of um, that sitter process, from a customer perspective, the customer identifies that thing that they need. The center process goes off and does all of those checks um, that are required in order to authorize an IT or OT acquisition. Um, supply chain is just one of those elements that they perform that check on. Um, Section 508 is another example of that check that is performed. Once the customer has entered into that sitter process, they basically sit back and wait for their authorization number um, and that complete procurement package to be returned to them. Um, at which point, if they are a credit card holder, they can go off and do their acquisition via that purchase card. If if it is above the simplified acquisition or that P card, as we call it, the purchase card threshold, then they would actually go into SAP, which is our acquisition system. On the other hand, if it's not a commercial IT acquisition, rather it's a contract that's being put in place, um, the NASA FAR supplement um, is what we have, and what we have is called a procurement class deviation, PCD. PCD 15-03 in its current form is at letter D, um, basically requires that contract clauses be put in such that that offeror or that potential offeror um, identifies for us all, while the legislation says moderate and high, NASA has taken the, the path of we are going to look at all covered articles, as well as open source, um, regardless of that FIPS 199 categorization. So um, as part of that process, that offerer would uh, indicate to us all of those covered articles that they are going to use in performance of that contract. And this is including their corporate assets. If that corporate asset is going to process any of that non-public NASA information, If, however, that corporate asset is just that, is their corporate asset, uh, say, for example, their time and attendance system, that is not something that we would ask for them to share. But again, anything that is touching uh, that non-public NASA information or is actually being used. So that that laptop or that server or that software that's being used to develop whatever it is um, that you have been contracted to do, to do is what we ask them to report back to us. Um, 
our policy states that no contract shall be awarded until after that submission has happened from the offeror and that we in the office of the CIO have given the okay to actually have that offeror come in and begin to perform. We are right now strategically pausing on updating that procurement class deviation and that we are waiting with bated breath for those federal acquisition regulation, the FAR updates that will capture some of the newer cybersecurity as well as supply chain requirements. And the great news is uh, we're told that those requirements will be in one place as opposed to the way that it is now kind of sporadically uh, placed around the FAR and it's kind of, you know, go hunt for what you, what you need to do. Right. I think that's going to be par part 50 something. And it sounds like you're kind of killing two birds with one stone for equipment and services that NASA will buy. Then you are assured of some degree of protection and security before you buy it, but also for suppliers that handle NASA data in the course of the services they deliver. The data then would be outside of NASA, maybe coming back at some point but you have this issue of contractors holding government information. Correct. And that's why I say any any device that they are using, whether it is on NASA premises or on their corporate premise, they would, and it is processing, transmitting, or storing non-public NASA information, they are required to report all of those components to us. Kenitra Tyler, the Supply Chain Risk Management Service Lead in the office of the CIO at NASA. Watch a video of my entire interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Click on Cyber Leaders Exchange. Still to come, a former submarine skipper on how to make the transition to post-military career success. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Too many veterans fail to thrive after they leave the military. It's called employment instability. My next guest is a highly decorated former Navy captain who, among other things, skippered a submarine. He's had success in high-ranking positions at technology companies. His new book, From CO to CEO, is full of ideas for how to transition successfully out of the military. Bill Toti joins me now. Captain Toti, good to have you with us. Glad to be here, Tom. Thank you very much. And what prompted this book, basically? It's a failure prompted the book. Uh, First, it was my own failure, almost, in the industry. Uh, Happily, my first employer decided I was worth saving and invested time and effort in me to try to correct my head as it pertained to civilian employment. But then over the next decade and a half, I noticed other guys and gals were out of the military were failing just like I had. And so... You know, after some analysis, realizing that I couldn't mentor one-on-one the hundreds of veteran employees I was hiring, I decided I needed to write all of these lessons down that kind of try to address the problem, why greater than 50% of transitioning veterans fail in their first civilian position. That's a little bit surprising because someone who has been a flag officer such as you were or a high-ranking enlisted person or just a you know colonel-level, captain-level you know in the other armed services, they have led large groups of people. They have handled programs for millions and billions of dollars. What's the gap there when they go to the private sector? Well, there's a paradox, Tom. It's, it's very well described by a book that I did not write called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And with that book... That's a great title. It is a great title. And what that book talks about is the more successful you were in your prior life, the more likely you are to fail under a set of changing circumstances. So 
you know, the, the, the fact that you found success leads you to, in many cases, erroneously believe that the same attributes that allowed you to succeed in a prior life will similarly work in a future life. But it's different circumstances with different people requiring different skills. And it, the, the past success can actually set you up for failure. And I noticed exactly that phenomenon happening with many of my highly successful transitioning veteran employees. In fact, I coined an expression to my especially senior officer friends while they're still on active duty, right? We tell them, yeah, you know what? Leadership is hard, but it's even harder when you're leading people who can actually quit because they didn't think that way, right? And so that, that aspect was leading them to fail in ways they had not anticipated. Right. In other words, there's a fundamental cultural difference between business and the military in this case because there is a command and control structure and there's other cultural norms that people may not understand unless they've been close to it. And then when you get into business, you're not close to the unspoken rules there, in other words. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I was screwing up in my very first job was I was treating the organizational chart for the company like a chain of command. I thought I had to like get checks in the block like I did on the joint staff when I was in the Pentagon, where everybody had to agree with a course of action before I could move forward. And one day my boss pulled me into his office and he said, you are screwing this up. You know, I'm going to use your expression. Our competitors are going to get inside our OODA loop because it's taking you too long to get to any decision. You need to learn to live with ambiguity. And that's something I couldn't get my head around. What do you mean I need to learn to live with ambiguity? It's not all going to be written down for you here. The processes, the procedures, you're going to be measured on your success, not whether you've checked all the right blocks. We're speaking with retired Navy Captain Bill Toti, and he's the author of From CO, that is Commanding Officer, to CEO. Well, let me just play devil's advocate for a minute, because in an actual battle or engagement situation, you know, what's the old saying? No plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. And those are largely improvised situations in reality after all the planning and so forth. So shouldn't that kind of help? Or is it simply that the United States engagements have not produced that many people with that kind of situational background? Well, it should help. But there's two deficiencies in in the statement. The first is of small minority of military officers have actually experienced that kind of combat mm-hmm. where, you know, most, God help me, this is the truth, most military officers succeeded and were promoted because of their staff performance, not because of their combat performance. Whether that's good or bad is irrelevant. It just is. So and that's kind of point number one. And point number two, the only time that kind of behavior is accepted in the military is in the heat of battle. The 98% of the time you're not in battle, you're expected to perform in accordance with your tactics, techniques, and procedures, your TTP, that don't exist in industry, right? You basically, you write your own processes as you go in many cases, except for things like quality assurance. That's a different matter. But as far as competing and winning in corporate life, there are no TTP, as it were. All right, good point. And let me ask you this. What about the distinction? And your book is 
basically focused at people coming out at a fairly high-ranking level that would go into business at the managerial or executive levels. Do you have any advice or any thoughts for people that are coming out of the military and their programs to convert, say, and this is, happens to be a big one, truck driving? There's a need, mm-hmm. national need for truck drivers. People have operated in logistics in the military, and they can do that kind of thing. That's not managerial, but nevertheless, you got to manage a career and make a living when you do come out. Well, I do talk a lot about the different mindsets, military versus industry, and the need to kind of adapt to the, to the new culture of your company. And I do give some clues on how to understand what that culture may be. And that would apply to anybody, whether they're a manager or not. I also give some survival skills. And, you know, it's kind of reading the tea leaves. It's a different set of tea leaves when you're in private industry than it was when you're in the military. And the fact that people don't necessarily, people will maybe for the first time in your life, be honest with you as it pertains to your performance. Whereas in the military, we don't want people to leave. So we kind of gloss over negative performance and we're always very upbeat. And we also, the, the military services as well are also guilty when you're transitioning out of the military, of trying to make you feel good about your military service, even when the advice that they're giving you is inappropriate for the civilian world. In essence, you're being set up to fail by the military when you leave. So I try to sensitize folks in the book, whether they're managers or not, with all these various trap lines. It's almost as if someone leaving would have to go back to their induction days where you know, you were not given great performance if you couldn't do the whatever it is required in basic training, the different types of activities that are designed to mentally challenge you as well as physically challenge you. If you could get back to that mindset, you might do better than the mindset you have at the conclusion of your career, sounds like. There are a lot of things that I think you need to unlearn when you transition to private industry. And yeah, it's almost like going back to your induction days. The difference is there's no boot camp for civilian life. The transition assistance program that the military pretends is your boot camp for civilian life is completely wrong. People that are giving that training have not really succeeded in industry. They're reading from a a training guide that somebody else wrote who probably also didn't succeed in industry. So it becomes the blind leading the blind. And it worse than sets you up. It beguiles you into believing that you have skills that you don't really have. And and that gets to your point about having to unlearn a bunch of things that you might have been learning for decades. And what, you have to set that all aside. What do they tell you in the transition planning? Oh, they're telling what, what I call the great lie was one of the things that I wanted to believe. I think we all want to believe when we're leaving the military. And it turns out it's 100 percent wrong. And the great lie is was told to me was all your future civilian employer wants from you is good leadership. We want to believe that because we all think we're good leaders. And it turns out when you give it 20 seconds of thought, good leadership isn't even enough in the military. If it was, you could take a B-52 wing commander and put them in command of a submarine squadron and they would do just fine. But that doesn't work. You actually need to know something about those submarines you're intending to lead. And it's no less true in industry. In order to succeed in industry, you actually need to know something about the company, the product, the performance, the customers, and no amount of good leadership is going to obviate the need to learn all of that stuff. So it was a great lie 
It made us feel really good about the skills we're bringing to our civilian jobs. And it turns out that can accelerate your crash and burn. In other words, you would not be approaching a business with the right humility, really. The fact that you would understand, I don't know anything about this. I do have leadership skills, but maybe the emphasis should be then on my adaptability and my ability to acquire new skills, which one should never set aside in life. Absolutely right. In fact, in the book, I make the point that it doesn't matter if you are a two-star general. When you join that company, you're a second lieutenant all over again. And you need to understand that. And you need to put aside all of that window dressing of being a general officer or flag officer and understand that your best attribute is your ability to learn. And if you don't develop that humility really quickly to understand that that 24-year-old in the desk next to you knows more about this new environment than you do, then you're going to fail. That's some good ice water in the face from retired Navy Captain Bill Toti, author of From CO to CEO. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a financial planning checklist as summer 2023 draws to a close. But first, in Suicide Prevention Month, let's not forget veterans' four-legged friends. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. September is Suicide Prevention Month with lots of information on prevention coming out of places like the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. A year in, the federally backed 988 Suicide Prevention Line has received millions of calls. But now we take a moment to celebrate how service dogs can help with the persistent problem of veteran suicide. Joining me with the details, the executive director of the Veterans Advocate Group Mission Roll Call, Cole Lyle. Mr. Lyle, good to have you back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And dogs, how do they actually help? I mean, service dogs are known to be good psychological. Any dog is a good psychological lift for anybody. But can they go so far as to help with suicide prevention? 100%. You know, I had my own dog. Her name was Kaya. And uh, I got her after I had tried traditional evidence-based treatments, pills and therapy from the VA that just exacerbated my symptoms. And dogs can, you know, help reduce symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but they can be an important backstop to suicide because when you get to that point and you're really in crisis, you think I'm totally alone and I don't have anybody that loves me or would miss me. And the dog is sitting there and you look at the dog and say, you know, I can't leave the dog. The dog would miss me. And on top of that, you know, they provide a sense of purpose that pills and and therapy just frankly won't ever do. But yet people commit suicide and veterans among them. You know, we still have that persistent 22 a day or so. They have wives and children very often that they are leaving behind. So what's the difference between a dog, do you think? Well, you know, somebody once said that dogs and infants are the only two things on earth that can experience and express true love. And part of why somebody gets to the point of crisis might be family. It might be relationship problems or divorce. It might be a custody battle with kids. It might be any number of different things. I mean, humans can add levels of stress, even if you are very, very close to them. And dogs, you know, the worst they're going to do is maybe have an accident on your floor. And specifically when it's a trained service dog, that is highly unlikely, number one. But number two, you know, they are 
trained to do things like Kaya was trained to wake me up from nightmares, to stop anxiety attacks through what's called the animal assisted intervention. So I think there's a difference, right? And I think anybody that has ever owned a dog will tell you that they can be therapeutic, but you know, somebody with a specially trained service dog that's trained to do work tasks specifically for psychiatric reasons can be exponentially more powerful. Interesting. Yeah. They say family can inflict wounds worse than the, your worst enemy could ever dream of, I suppose. <laughs> That's what Clarence yeah. Darrow used to say, the uh, late lawyer. And the Pause Act helped yeah. expedite the supplying of the right kind of trained dogs to veterans. That's been in effect since 2018. And has that helped? Well, the, the bill actually passed in 2021. I think the original uh, or the compromised version was introduced in 2018. It's a pilot program that provides five different sites across the country to, to prove and train because the, the VA's opposition to service dogs has been that there's not enough research done on the topic to prove that they work. So this is a pilot program. Uh, the preliminary and interim studies have all been very good and said that they reduce suicidal ideation and reduce post-traumatic stress. And I think a little over 100 dogs have been placed thus far. So as long as it continues to be successful, I see no reason why the program won't be permanently authorized. And if someone can't get a dog via the VA, since there's only 100 and there's millions of veterans and maybe who knows how many hundreds of thousands might desire one of these dogs, is there... Right other options to acquire a service-trained dog? Yeah. Um, well, the, the whole reason the PAWS Act exists is because nonprofits like Canines for Warriors and Labs for Liberty, Warrior Canine Connection, all came together and said, look, we're seeing this massive need in the veteran community. And they place hundreds and thousands of dogs every year with veterans in need. So absolutely. The problem is with nonprofit-based budgets and the need, the wait times can sometimes be over a year. So that was the whole point of the PAWS Act initially is to provide grant funding to these organizations so that they can help offset and, and get more to economies of scale doing this using federal dollars. We're speaking with Cole Lyle. He is executive director of the Veterans Advocate Group Mission Roll Call. And now there is the SAVES Act, not to be confused right. with the SAVE Act without an S. That's a different thing. But the SAVES with an S Act in the Senate would increase the funding. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, so the original version of the PAWS Act that I wrote uh, back in 2015 was essentially the SAVES Act. It was, you know, we want to just provide direct grant funding to the Department of Veterans Affairs to give uh, Congress, meaning Congress wants to provide that funding to, to the Department of Veterans Affairs so that they can in turn much like they're doing now with the Parker Gordon Fox grant program, provide grants to organizations that are in the suicide prevention business for veterans. And that would, again, help offset some of that donor funding and allow these nonprofits to get to economies of scale providing these dogs. Congress obviously can't do anything without compromise, even if it's dogs, veterans. So the original PAWS Act was compromised, and that was what passed in 2021. The SAVES Act basically just goes back and says, look, we want direct grant funding to organizations. We already know this works with the epidemic of veteran suicides being what it is right now. We don't have time to wait for another you know, two years for the PAWS Act pilot to be completed. Let's just do this now. Got it. And what are the prospects looking? How much is the backing uh, building up there? And is there a House and a Senate version? Yeah, I think it has bipartisan support in the House and the Senate, again, with 
everything in Congress, it takes time, even unless it's like a, you know, crisis thing, like a CR or something that's politically necessary. So I think it stands a good chance of passing. It's just the matter of can we get the authorization and the appropriation so it's not an unfunded mandate at VA and so that the VA will will pass it. The problem with this in particular is that a lot of people that run the Veterans Health Organization, while they are sympathetic to the suicide prevention problem, they view service dogs and kind of some other holistic approaches to, to mental health with a wary eye because they spent years of their lives and hundreds of thousands of dollars going to medical school learning the traditional approaches. So, you know, Congress and veteran advocacy groups have really tried to, to drag them kicking and screaming to accept service dogs as an option. But I think we're getting there and I think it'll happen soon. Well, we know the VA is testing LSD in other domains and also they've accepted acupuncture some years ago. Yeah. So I guess there's hope for anything. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think we'd get to the Overton window of, uh, of, of LSD for post-traumatic stress, but we are here. So, you know, there is hope for different levels of holistic support and service dogs can be a great option to that end for suicide prevention and for reducing symptoms of depression, post-traumatic stress, even veterans that have physical, you know, limitations to movement, obviously seeing eye dogs, but a veteran who's an amputee that needs a dog that's trained to go retrieve things for them and bring it back or turn lights on or things like that. They can be incredibly helpful and supportive in a number of different ways. And how are you doing these days? You know, I'm, I'm okay. I, I lost Kaya back in February, you know, and, and it remains to be seen whether or not I'll get another service dog. I'm certainly going to get another dog one way or the other, but I haven't really seen a recurring of my symptoms that necessitated Kaya. So if that changes, I, you know, I'll probably get another service dog, but that sure. remains to be seen. Well, the loss of a dog, whether it's a suicide prevention dog or any other dog, is real loss. And so we, we yep. sympathize and we know what you're going through. Cole Lyle is executive director of Mission Roll Call. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a financial planning checklist as summer 2023 draws to the close. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It is the last day of summer. Somehow the autumn brings renewed thoughts of financial planning for many people. Open season for the federal health benefits plans, that's approaching also. For some fresh thinking, I spoke with a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland, Tiago Glieger. His firm specializes in federal employees. We talked about what Fed should be thinking about financially as 2024 draws closer, starting with the question of traditional or Roth plan for your thrift savings plan. The name of the game is figuring out when are you going to owe the least amount of taxes. You know, when you think about the taxes that you're going to have to pay, you owe the taxes at some point. And so if you think about what your tax bracket is right now relative to what your tax bracket might be later in life, then you can start to determine, okay, does it make sense to pay the taxes right now, use the Roth, compared to later? Because we have things like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that will be sunsetting, which means that it's going to go back to the old tax rates here in a couple of years unless there's no law changes. And so if that happens, then federal employees can expect to see tax rates bump up by 3 or 4%, right? And so if you consider what rates will be 3 or 4% from now compared to now, you might think, okay, well, Maybe we do 
a Roth contribution, a Roth conversion. Uh, you can't convert within the TSP, but you can switch to Roth contributions. And so you get to save yourself a couple of points in taxes here. And then that money gets to grow totally tax-free for the rest of your life. Right. To clarify, the Roth option you pay with after-tax dollars so that they are not taxed upon withdrawal. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right. And there's a complication to this calculus, though, because the standard model is you retire, your income goes down, your taxes are lower. Great. That's why you have an IRA, non-Roth. But the reality is a lot of people and a lot of feds uh, work after they retire from the federal government. In fact, at the higher levels, they go on to sometimes executive positions at contractors and companies where they continue to ply their expertise. And that can last another 10, 12, 15 years after the official Fed retirement. And then you could be in a situation where you're still working, yet you have reached the required minimum distribution stage. So how the heck do you calculate all that in terms of the least tax liability? Yeah, that's that's really tough because if you're expecting to be earning through your retirement years and still right up to your RMD or minimum distribution, then you could be sitting on a tax bomb, especially if your whole life you've contributed to traditional TSP or pre-tax TSP. And so you want to make use of possibly these years that we have slightly reduced rates right now, um, unless Congress changes the tax laws coming up here in a couple of years. Now, the key with earning beyond your federal service is understanding where your tax rates will be in the future relative to where they are now. So you can do some income projecting. If you are maxed out at the you know 183.500, whatever the GS-15 top max is right now, what do you think you're going to be earning if you're not working in federal service? You might be earning more, you might be earning less, depending on how much time you want to commit to that. And so try and project out your income and think about where will your, your income be. If you have your minimum distributions from the retirement accounts, those also stack on top of your income. And so you get to see where your bracket falls and determine how much taxes are you paying then, right, compared to what you would be paying now if you were to just do the Roth contribution right now or if you were to do a Roth conversion. And can you get the calculus close enough say, with your own financial or tax advisor, such that you might opt for voluntarily lower income because you might net more and you'll have more take-home for that you know, pen collection you want to keep building when you're in retirement because of that tax effect. Yeah, for sure. Because if you- Don't pay me so much. I don't want to hit the tax bomb. Exactly. Exactly. And we see that with a lot of retirees. They do an analysis of what it would look like if they didn't do Roth at all, then they're maxed out on their minimum distributions versus if they just pay a little bit of taxes along the way. And if you can get yourself into lower brackets in retirement, think about retirement is as long as your career for most people. And so if you can be in low tax brackets for as long as you were working in retirement, then you're paying the least amount of taxes compared to if you were to just go ahead and pay the taxes when you're actually working. And so that's something that a lot of people can do in A scenario and a B scenario to try and figure out what would be the overall estimated tax liability throughout my whole life if I did a Roth versus if I didn't. And sometimes we'll find people take a couple of years off between federal service and post-retirement work. They, those are years that their income has gone way down, right? And so you might consider doing accelerated Roth conversions, fill up those tax brackets up until whatever bracket you're comfortable, maybe the 22, right? Because that might prevent you from being in the 28 or higher later, depending on how big your retirement account is. Which also shows, you know, how tax policy affects so much in the economy and just 
you know, everybody's worried about a recession, yes or no, at the moment. Imagine what happens if tax rates shoot up 3 or 4% in a couple of years. That's right. You know, say what you want, but that could really have a recessionary impact on yep. the economy. Well, if my retirement lasts as long as my career, that means I'll live to 117. <laughs> Don't think that's going to happen. I don't really want it to happen, to be right. honest. I'm the world's first 117-year-old. And speaking of the economy, you know, it's rocky right now in terms of the gyrations of the market, even though the fundamentals look good in some sense, they don't look so good in other. Let's talk about what you call the G-fund trap, which is just that idea of defaulting to the safest fund because you don't know what's going to happen can really not be such a great strategy. Yeah, especially when we think long term. Inflation is the silent retirement killer. And so when we look at what the impact of inflation is over 10, 20, 30 years, if you're not if your investments are not outpacing that inflation plus the spending that you're doing, you could be in a situation where you're running out of money before you run out of time. And so the G fund struggles in outpacing inflation because it's not designed to do so. The G fund is designed to be principal protection, and it does give you some interest rate along the way. But when markets become volatile, investors have this visceral response of protecting what they've worked really hard for. And they get into this emotional trap of, of trying to protect as it's going down. But the, the issue and why it's a trap is when are people actually ready to get back into the markets, right? If we think about the flows of the different TSP funds earlier this year. The TSP gave us information, uh, you know, I think it was around April, May, June, billions of dollars were flowing back into the CS&I fund from the G fund. And the reason billions of dollars were moving back are because federal employees were seeing, hey, they're paying well this year. But the challenge is you're jumping on a moving train, right? The, the markets have already begun to recover. And so it's taking you a little bit of time mm-hmm. to get comfortable with the markets again to get back in. And the chances are is you already missed a big part of that recovery. And that's why it's a, such a trap because you're scared to get back in because you were just punished for being in the CS&I fund in the markets. But then by the time you're ready to get back in, you've likely already missed a big chunk of that return already. And that's where federal employees... Uh, can trade themselves into oblivion sometimes. Yeah, you're selling low and buying high. Essentially. Timing, chasing, never a good idea for the average single investor, is it? Yeah, and in fact, I think consistently timing the markets correctly, I don't believe is very possible. You know, I think it's really hard to do that over an entire lifetime. There may be periods of times here and there where you can get the timing right, and that's great, you know. But I think in the long run, it's really hard to do that. Like winning in Las Vegas. That's right. People never tell you how lousy they did. They just tell you when they hit that one machine. <laughs> We're speaking with Tiago Glieger. He's a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. And we are on the doorstep of open season. And there's a lot of changes because of OPM rules, for example, the coming infertility benefit payments that will be available to, I guess, those on the childbearing age feds. This is a time when you also got to do some real hard thinking rather than default to just sticking with the plan you might have now. Yeah, I think that a lot of federal employees are on cruise control during open season. They're happy with their plan because they didn't have any issues with their plan. But I think what they don't realize is they could be saving money by making sure that they have the right benefits in place. So, for instance, sometimes we see people ramp up their benefits when they have kids or maybe they have some procedures that are coming up. 
And they kind of stick with that plan for a long time, and they don't ratchet it back down for the, you know, the less premium plans when they have lesser needs. And so that's some money that you could be saving. Uh, the other component is Fegley. You know, the life insurance, that's a really big area where we either see people overinsured or underinsured. And so going through an exercise of understanding what we would call with our clients the, uh, the life insurance gap, how much life insurance is actually appropriate for you, because it does get expensive over time. Tiago Glieger is a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com and click on the FedLife podcast. The Postal Service Regulatory Commissioners want to grow their tiny workforce to oversee big changes in the Postal Service itself. The commissioners made new hires and tech upgrades priorities in their budget request for fiscal 2024, but the commission is not getting everything it asked for. The Postal Service, and not Congress, approves commission spending. Conflict of interest? Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Postal Regulatory Commission chairman, Michael Kubianda. From my understanding, when the PRC budget went through the governors prior to 2007, they generally did not probe into specific PRC priorities as they were reviewing those budget requests. In this budget cycle, there happened to be a lot of questions about the PRC's approach to regulating and why we wanted to invest in certain capabilities or needed certain types of expertise. Now, these are perfectly reasonable questions in many contexts when you're talking about how funds are going to be used, but it's a little bit different when you're talking about a regulator and an operator, and the operator is trying to determine what they think is appropriate for the the regulator to invest in. So those are some of the issues that started to set off a few alarm bells regarding independence, and I realized there might be a need to draw a, a few lines even if everyone is carrying out their roles in good faith, as I believe they were. And we have to keep in mind, this is only the second year of this process since the postal reform law of 2022 passed. And so it does need a little bit of refinement. And and so we're hoping to work with the governors to do that. One thing that's pretty remarkable about the PRC is that it's a very small agency that oversees a very large agency. How big of an undertaking would you say it is for the PRC to oversee implementation of this 10-year Delivering for America plan, and what kind of resources does the commission ultimately need to oversee that plan? It is a major undertaking for the commission, and you're right. We are a very small agency. We have just over 80 employees, and uh, we're overseeing an organization that has over 600,000 employees and is an $80 billion organization that touches every American. Delivering for America is the Postal Service's current plan for kind of redesigning the network. One of our jobs is to oversee that plan. It's a a significant undertaking for us. It's a little bit tempered for now because the docket that we have open to look at Delivering for America is what's known as a public inquiry docket rather than one leading directly to a regulatory action at this time. We're simply trying to find out what's going on with the processing and delivery uh, design changes. And if this ends up leading to an advisory opinion where the PRC weighs in with a very technical uh, analysis, that tends to be a a little bit more involved. So at this stage, we're in the the more kind of open-ended where any stakeholder can, can weigh in and ask questions. About 10% of our staff level resources are working on this currently. Now, for us, that's a big deal because we're so small. We have about, I think, our combined legal and analytical teams, you know, with uh, economists and accountants and so forth, is about 40 people. And so we are a micro agency and we're currently at capacity. So any kind of new undertaking is a bit of a challenge for us. 
we also one thing I've always pointed to is we don't have any engineering or operations experts on our like fantastic staff of lawyers and analysts to provide input. And this is a very large uh, engineering uh, undertaking. So we actually created a new data analytics team partly to deal with these types of issues. And this oversight responsibility really challenges their ability to analyze data and determine issues of efficiency and network performance. But I think the issue for us is that oversight of DFA comes as we're capacity and in the middle of twice a year rate increases, which is a really enormous undertaking, very detailed for us, and the negotiated service agreements that I talked about. Uh, So the Postal Service has several proposals in front of us, and all those require multiple staff members. Another issue for us is we're required to assign a public representative to every single case that's before the commission. So any kind of new undertaking tends to challenge our resources. I believe that what we need in terms of resources, we laid it out in our, our budget proposal. And frankly, I think we're potentially in a position to apply the resources that we need to undertake this work. The issue for us is that the governors didn't fund our full request. They funded us at 21.1 million and we requested 22.6 million from governors. So it's one and a half million dollars below that. I think their implication of of that is they want us to spend down this pool of restricted cash that we have. And generally what the commission had done is set up a wall where that technology modernization fund awards that we had received, as well as the restricted cash were used for sort of short-term and kind of time-restricted spending, such as spending on infrastructure improvements or spending on like hiring consultants for short-term. And we avoided using that for recurring funds. What we're going to have to do now, I think, is spend down some of that cash that we had set aside for those short-term needs and apply that for recurring funds. So our concern is that as we move through this budget cycle and move into the next one, that we're able to pick up investment in the Postal uh, Regulatory Commission. Well, I wanted to end this interview where we started here, and that's going back to the commission's independence. Of course, we were talking about the budget earlier. I did want to get your thoughts on some of the statements that the Postmaster General has made about the commission. I think he has said in some meetings that he has questioned whether USPS needs a regulator of any kind. In a sit-down interview I had with him this summer, he said that the Postal Service doesn't need to be babysat by a commission. How do you uh, navigate your role as chairman of the commission, just given everything that we've been seeing and hearing as of late? Great question and very complex question that we could probably talk about for days. But we've noted those remarks. And I think the, the first response, it's the law. The um, Congress created the Postal Regulatory Commission to oversee the Postal Service, and and that's still the law. And so um, it's not up to any individual, it's not up to me or any other individual to unilaterally uh, change that. Uh, there And there are good reasons that Congress created the, the Postal Regulatory Commission. Um, more broadly speaking, I think, you know, I think in the United States, we tend to believe competition is the best regulator. That's the, the best protection for consumers. And where there's a lack of competition in certain sectors of the economy, that's where you do need a regulatory body. The Postal Service is a has a legally granted monopoly. It's a gargantuan $80 billion per year organization that touches every American and has that legal monopoly. So this is the classic case in our kind of free market system for where you do need a regulator. And this is, happens to be a government monopoly. So the case is even stronger. But more specifically, I think the Postmaster General had expressed some concerns about 
you know, commission's action, prior actions or lack of actions on the price cap. That was a cap that was set by law. And the commission did act to address that. And with the very limited resources, but came together uh, for that huge undertaking. And so uh, it's not clear what exactly he's referring to. And then I know for the, the DFA or with the, the babysitting remark, as you mentioned, the commission advisory opinions are advisory. And so the commission does not stop or halt network changes. And so uh, through those opinions, and, and so it's not clear where that's coming from either. But I think as we move forward, I think we've seen lots of concerns from members of Congress, from local elected officials, from members of the public about what is going on with the postal system and the impact of those changes. And we're getting more and more complaints. I've got, I'm getting personal calls from elected officials and their staff members about this problem. So I think what we can do is provide that transparency and accountability through like objective analysis. I've described our role as sometimes uh, being a technocratic body uh, and providing that objective analysis. Um, and whether, however he, you know, he sees it in particular, I know that role is well-received and it's valuable. And I think we're seeing a more and more acute need for that role due to the changes that are going on in the postal system. Michael Kubianda, chairman of the Postal Regulatory Commission, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.